Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Raven. I would like to tell you about my new sponsor, Intellectual Linear Progression. It is an online community where people are changed by the books that change the world. Intellectual Linear Progression sends you the best translations of books written by the most influential Western philosophers. Then, helps you develop good reading habits by text and email reminders. Once a month, there's an online Zoom seminar where community members, as well as a host trained in the Socratic method, discuss what you read. This ensures that you get the most out of the reading by seeing it from lots of different perspectives and contributing your own. If you are interested, please go to onlinegreatbooks.com slash ref slash v-a-m like vampires and use the code v-a-m to get 25% off your first three months as well as supporting the Tiny Vampires podcast. Hello, and welcome to Tiny Vampires, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. An Agora Podcast Network member. Episode 18, The Use of Viruses to Control Pest Insects Like Carpenter Ants. I'm Raven Forrest Frescalzo, your host. The topic was suggested by Steve Guerra, who had a battle with carpenter ants. The exterminator he hired used a virus instead of chemicals to kill the ants invading Steve's home, sparking his interest in the subject. Carpenter ants are some of the largest found Carpenter ants are some of the largest ants found in the U.S. They need moisture, so they often start their infestation where the wood of a house meets soil or by a leaky pipe the homeowner doesn't know about. As their name suggests, they damage wood, but they're not actually eating it. They're making secure homes for their young. They actually eat other insects and other things that they find around the house while they're scavenging, like sugary or savory human foods. 
When they come into contact with humans, they are typically doing damage to trees in the yard or to the wood in the structure of a house. They can cause serious structural damage and be very difficult to remove. This is because they can have many nests, one parent nest, and multiple satellite nests. Using pesticides often only kills one satellite nest, allowing the colony to bounce back in a short amount of time. This parent nest is often in a dead tree, decorative driftwood, or firewood pile outside of the home. Houses built in the woods are often hit harder because the colonies there already are established, so there's lots of workers to move in and start doing damage, sometimes before the house is even done being built. Now that I've scared every homeowner listening, including myself, let me tell you how you can tell if your house has carpenter ant colony in it. One major sign is lines of large ants going to and from the house, from a tree or wood pile outside of the house. These could be workers going back and forth between a parent nest outside and the satellite nest inside the walls. Or it could be scavengers going out to find food for the colony. Another sign is small wood piles found around the house. You can find nests by listening to the walls. An established nest can have 10 to 50,000 ants. So you can actually hear them chewing on the wood and moving around. In extreme cases, flying reproductive adults will fly out of the walls and swarm inside or outside of the home. It's a pretty impressive sight to see. I'll post a video in the show notes of this episode. So what about using viruses to kill them? Using a pest's naturally occurring enemy to control its population is called biological control. Biological control comes in all different shapes and sizes. First, let's go over what biological control isn't. Using something like neem oil or diatomaceous earth is not biological control. While they do control pests, they are a byproduct of a living organism, not the living organism themselves. These types of control agents are referred to as biopesticides and are pretty common in the world of organic farming. Classical biological control is the self-sustaining use of a natural enemy to suppress a pest's population. In this case, we're talking about a virus, but there are also bacteria, like the Bacillus thuringius, that produces a toxin that kills caterpillars. A fungi, like various species of metarhizium, that infect and kill locusts, and lots of parasites, including one called forid flies, which lays its eggs in the heads of their ant victims. And predators, such as ladybug beetles feeding on aphids. Biological control isn't only used on insects. The rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus was used in an unsuccessful attempt to wipe out invasive rabbits from Australia and New Zealand and a cactus moth 
was used successfully to control the spread of prickly pear cactus in Australia. There is a lot to the subject of biological control, so I'm going to focus just on the viruses we use to control insects today. Unfortunately, despite extensive searching, I was not able to find out the name of the specific virus used to control carpenter ants. However, I can go through some of the viruses that are used extensively in pest control, and we can go from there. Baculoviruses are the most common biological control virus. They are used to exterminate moth and butterfly larvae from agricultural fields and orchards. These viruses are so efficient that nearly all of each infected insect cells is converted into virus material, giving the victim a melted appearance. As far as viruses specific to ants go, I was able to find great information about Solenopsis invicta, which is the red imported fire ant. If you've ever been to the southern U.S. where they are invasive, or South America where they're native, you know how they earned their name, fire ant, and invicta, which is Latin for invincible. There are four viruses that specifically infected these invasive fire ants. The first, a densovirus, is a single-stranded DNA molecule. So unlike our DNA, which is like a twisted ladder, it only has one rail on one side and all the rungs are still in place. This is the same structure that the herpes virus has. Not that they're at all related, just they have the same structure. As far as I can tell, we don't know much about how this virus actually kills the ants, but it is the focus of study. Solenopsis invicta virus 1, 2, and 3 are three related RNA viruses, which also infect fire ants, as you can tell from the name. Because they are RNA instead of DNA, they don't have to enter the nucleus of the ant's cell, where the ant's DNA is, to replicate. So it goes straight to the step where the ant's cellular machinery translates the viral code into the proteins the virus needs. Even though these three viruses are all related, each affects ants in a slightly different way. Solenopsis invicta virus 1 or SYNV1 for short, only really causes serious harm to the ant when it is stressed. So, if your colony is infected and you suddenly had a flood, an outbreak would occur, wiping out the colony, even though the ants could have handled the virus, or the flood, just fine on its own. SYNV2 seems to only infect the testes of male ants, causing these ants to become sick, which is a thought that I'm sorry to put into the heads of any of those of you with testes. This virus impacts the size of the colony very little, if at all. SYNV3 is the virus that we're going to be talking about today. I want to give you a well-rounded idea of how entomologists go about determining what makes a good and a bad candidate for the use as a biological control agent. 
This process would have been similar to the one used to develop the carpenter ant treatment that Steve's exterminator used. The paper is Host Specificity and Colony Impacts of Fire Ant Pathogen Solenopsis Invicta Virus 3 by Porter et al., This paper will show us how someone figures out if a virus is deadly enough to be worth using and specific enough to not kill anything we don't want it to. You don't want to go spending money on ladybug beetles to eat your aphids just to wipe them out with your ant spray. Porter's group wanted to figure out what ants the virus would kill and which would be untouched. Just as there are plenty of dog pig, and monkey viruses that don't make humans sick. Insect viruses can be really tuned in to just one or two species of ants. Or they can be so broad that they infect not only ants, but also their relatives, like bees and wasps. Because the cellular structure and immune systems of more closely related animals are so similar, we expect to see them be killed by a virus more often than those more distantly related. With this in mind, Porter started off with 19 different species of ants. Some were uninfected Solenopsis invicta. Some hybrids of invicta and a closely related species. And the rest were progressively more distantly related species, like a type of native Florida fire ant. They tried two different ways of infecting these ant colonies. The first was a more natural approach, mimicking something that would happen in the rainforest. Native virus-free ants, infected invasive ants, and virus-free invasive ants were all housed side by side. After one month, the researchers looked to see if there was any signs of infection. And there wasn't. But when they used molecular biology techniques, they found out what was really going on. So, say you are one of the lab workers in Porter's group. You need to see if the ants are actually infected and just not showing any symptoms yet, or if they just aren't infected. What would you do to figure this out? If you remember, SYNV3 is an RNA virus, just like Zika. In episode 15, we learned that RNA is pretty unstable and easy to mess up. So we have to take that code and write it in DNA instead, because it's a more stable molecule. Copying the code from DNA to RNA is called transcription. So, going the other way is called reverse transcription. To figure out this mystery, you would just use a protein called reverse transcriptase, ace just meaning protein, to get your DNA. That's the short version. If you want more details, check out episode 15. Once they had this DNA, they could not only tell if ants contained the virus, but also which ants the virus was actually harming. 
Here's how. The virus, when it's outside of an ant, just waiting to be picked up, it's single-stranded, like that one railed ladder we were talking about before. Just like a ladder has a clear top and bottom, RNA and DNA strands have indicators showing if they're plus or minus. For molecular reasons I won't get into right now, these are called 5' and 3' ends. If you were to scoop up some of the dirt from around one of these infected anthills, you would find only plus RNA. But if you looked inside an ant that was dying from the virus, you would see both plus and minus, because the minus strand is made during the virus's replication process. So, by not only looking for the virus's code inside the ants, but also looking if the code is plus or minus, we learn if the ant just happened to have eaten something with a virus on it, or if the virus was actually making that ant sick. In the case of the healthy invasive and non-invasive ants that were housed with the sick ants, Porter and their co-workers found that the closely related ants and six more distantly related species had virus particles in them, but only the invasive ants were actually sick. It turns out that a month was just not long enough to devastate the invasive colony. This bodes well for the use of this virus as a biological control agent, because a sick invasive colony is not likely to get a native ant species sick. But the problem is that their environment wasn't spray-coated with virus like what happens when an exterminator is called. It was a more natural setting. So, to mimic what an ant colony would be exposed to if an exterminator came around, Porter exposed new colonies of invasive and native ants to the virus from all directions. It was in their food, their water, and their homes. The colonies were tested for RNA, just like in the previous experiment. This time, the invasive ants and the invasive native hybrid ants were sick, but none of the native ants were being harmed showing that even an ultra-high dose and guaranteed exposure, the ants we want to save stay alive, and the ants we want to kill become sick. When the sick and healthy ants were housed together, all of the colonies looked healthy from the outside. But in the exterminator-type scenario, after the ultra-high dosage, the researchers could visually see that these colonies were dying. To actually give a number to how much they were dying, they used a camera and digital image analysis software. Photos of the ants' housing were taken when they were growing and healthy at the beginning of the experiment, then again at the end of the experiment. In these pictures, the researchers could see how much of the housing space the ants were using to raise their young. Lots of young means a very healthy colony. 
computer software analyzed this area before and after exposure to the virus. While the native ants were still growing and strong, even after a year of being exposed to the virus, the invasive ants declined by as much as 85%, with some colonies dying off completely. This shows that the biological control of pests requires a lot of work. While on its face, the SYNV3 looks like it would be a great control agent, most consumers would be unlikely to use it, because it takes so long to destroy a nest, if it destroys it at all. This particular virus would be more likely to be used in massive control efforts to stop the advance of this invasive ant, or to at least knock down their numbers enough for native ants to take control of resources. Porter's group worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Agriculture Research Service. Now that we've answered Steve's question, I want to talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of using viruses as biological control agents for any insect. One of the major disadvantages is that most biological control agents are highly specific. If you're a regular person getting bit up by ants in your yard, you're unlikely to know, or maybe even care, if they're native or invasive fire ants. If you go and buy a product to kill these fire ants, it might not work because you aren't matching the insect to the virus. Another disadvantage is that these viruses can take some time. And in the case of carpenter ants, they're still chewing up your home while you wait. Also, while the viruses you apply to your yard could be effective for years, they could also be destroyed by sunlight, so it isn't easy to know when you should reapply. The advantages to viral biological control are many. In a world where we are being much more careful about the chemicals we expose ourselves, our children, and even our pets to, It is comforting to know how picky these viruses can be. The disadvantage becomes an advantage when you can use a virus to control an invasive species, going from harming the environment to helping it. Another advantage is that these viruses are self-perpetuating. An ant spreads the disease for you. In the next episode, we are going to cover while oral parasitides are not available for cats, and why the topical parasitides can sometimes be dangerous, which is a topic suggested by Yvonne Harris. She sent the request in through the Contact Us section of the Tiny Vampires website. As a cat owner myself, I'm eager to look into this subject. April's Agora Podcast of the Month is The History of England by David Crowther. It's really fun and often hilarious. Also, he was recently listed on Player FM's Top 20 History Podcasts. And one more announcement. I'm going to be graduating with my Master's of Science in Entomology next month. 
I want to thank you for going through this graduate school journey with me. You guys have been great about putting up with some not-quite-on-time episodes and haggard, I-stayed-up-too-late-writing-scripts voice. I hope that you found and continue to find this podcast informative. Please rate and review either myself or Raquel over at Tiny Vampires Espanol to let us know how we're doing. If you have any topic suggestions, I would love to hear them. Send them via Twitter at Tiny Vampires Pod through Facebook or the website's Contact Us page. While you are on tinyvampires.com, check out the show notes, music credits, and more. Thank you for listening from me, Raven Forrest Frescalzo, Masters of Science student at the University of Notre Dame, and funded by the National Science Foundation. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.